I truly had some questions as to whether or not I could do the job when I first started. I was known as Waterfall back in the videotape room because I sweat profusely on the air. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Just dream it. Say it out loud with your words and then unicorns arrive from nowhere and they just make everything easy. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord and on the show today we have Emmy winning sportscaster Greg Gumbel as he shares his journey from small market broadcasting to the national stage, the grind of covering March Madness and the secret to success he learned from his father. My absolute favorite time of the year is March Madness. It is a magical time for me, and there's nobody that people associate with that more than Greg Gumbel. He's hosted it forever, uh, whether it's the the opening, uh, whether it's all the way through hosting the anchor desk. He's just somebody that I, I've so much enjoyed and is somebody who's studied broadcasting and done interviews. Uh, it's really a thrill for me today uh, to be able to talk to Greg Gumbel. So I started this interview by asking how he first got into broadcasting. Well, I was, I was selling supplies, hospital supplies, in uh, Detroit, Michigan, and doing a really good job of it, except that I just really didn't like it a whole lot. No, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of thrill when uh, a purchasing director at a hospital would call your home at 5 in the morning wondering where her syringes and needles were that were supposed to have been delivered. Uh, and, and, I, and, and so I was really good at it. I just didn't like it. And it was about that time that my brother called me from, uh, from Los Angeles. And he said that uh, the NBC affiliate in Chicago, which is where we grew up, and I was – you know, he said that, uh, that they were looking for a weekend sportscaster. And so I applied and I auditioned with a couple hundred other guys. And they said, don't call us, we'll call you. And three weeks later, they called me back. And I was happy to get back to Chicago, number one, because as I said, I grew up there. And number two, uh, my dad had passed away the year before. And I had been running back and forth between Detroit and Chicago anyway, looking after my mom and my sisters. So this was a chance to get back and, and, and be closer to them. How much did your sales background help you? In broadcasting, ooh, none at all. <laughs> none, what, none whatsoever that I can tell. The thing that I found out about sales is was dependent on uh, good product, good service, and likability. And you know, I could have. In fact, there, there have been times that I knew that I got an account simply because the uh, purchasing agent liked me more than the other guy. He might have had a better price. I don't think his product was better. But the fact is that. Um, you know, you're not really going to deal too much with people that you don't like. In that regard, Brian, I guess you might be right, because I'm not sure that there are a whole lot of people who succeed in television if they don't have some degree of likability. There are some. There are some broadcasters I don't like. And, and when I say I don't like them, I, mean, I don't like their presentation. I don't like people who yell at me on the air. I don't like people who are aloof and who, who make you give you the impression that they know everything and they kind of kind of look at the camera and go, okay, sit down, children, and I'm going to explain to you everything there is to know about this. I don't like that type of broadcaster, I, and I don't believe that most people do. I think that people will watch other people whom they like, and if they don't like you, they tune it out. You know, I, I think that, you know, you go back to Howard Cosell, whom I did not like, either personally or professionally. And, and, and I think that, that, that there were as many people who tuned in to watch Howard Cosell as there were to hate him. And, and, of course, ABC didn't care why you tuned in. They just cared that you tuned in. 
But I think that there that, that there that there have been those people who engender an anger, and someone will just call up. It's like a talk show radio host, and they'll call up just to scream at the guy because he's got an opinion which, more often than not, comes from a desire to inflame the audience. Because now you get more people listening, and you get people involved, and you know the host doesn't care again. Whether he's right or wrong, he cares that people are listening and tuning in and, and, and calling up to argue. What was the path like for you from you know going Midwest to becoming like this this big national personality? And who were who were some of the people that maybe influenced you along the way? Well, certainly my brother influenced me along the way. I mean, I you know people I for for a while there I was really not a whole lot more than Brian's brother. And look, I was I was learning the business just as he had to learn the business. Neither one of us took broadcasting in school. Um, my school did not have radio and, uh, and TV um, communications or courses or anything like that, or journalism courses. Um, is, and, 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 I've, and I've always believed that those aren't necessary. They help, but I don't think they're necessary. I think you need to be able to, to as, as my dad used to teach us, to listen carefully, think intelligently, and speak clearly. Those are the important things that you do in life. I'm not talking about broadcasting. In life, those happen to fit very well with broadcasting ideals and what you need to do. And I and, and I think that if you are good enough at those things, then you can learn the rest. And and I did, and Bryant did, obviously. But uh, but you know, I've known gosh, I've known athletes who've gone to broadcasting school and they come out and they try to be on TV, and they try and try and try. It just doesn't work for whatever reason. It just doesn't work. And I think you can study it all you want to, and if you just don't have whatever it takes, and, and who knows if you can put your finger exactly on that, but if you don't have that, then all the schooling in the world isn't going to help. So I, you know, I, I was fortunate that the NBC station in Chicago stuck with me long enough to, uh, for me to learn what it is I had to learn, and I spent uh, seven and a half years there. And um, I was sports director when I left, and then along came ESPN, and ESPN said, hey, instead of doing three minutes of sports at 10 o'clock at night, you can do an hour for us, and host a talk show, and host uh, uh, an NBA show. And I went, good. So I went to ESPN for five and a half years, and from there to Madison Square Garden, and from Madison Square Garden to CBS, and CBS to NBC for four years, and then back to CBS. Now you mentioned your your dad and and that he'd passed away at a, a fairly young age for you. Uh, what what influence did he and, and your and your mom have on on you as a, as a person and as a broadcaster? Everything. Well, first of all, my dad my dad passed away uh, too early to see either my brother or myself on the air, and we. You know, whenever we're having dinner and over a glass of wine or, or a martini, we'll, we'll talk about the time. But, you know, he basically taught us everything that we knew and know about sports and how to appreciate aspects of the games. Um, and, and yet, um, and, and, you know, he would, uh, like for our, for our birthdays, you know, we special things, box seats at a Cubs or a White Sox game. And, uh, and now we're at, a, we're at a position where we could get him box seats for the season, and uh, and he's not around. Uh, he did he did pass in an early age, uh, and we were you know both Bryant and I and my sisters were were deprived of so much. But I think that the basic lessons that he taught us, um, you know, how to go about things, how to, how to try to go about things intelligently, how to um, to treat people, um, and and how to persevere, all of those things. Which and I'm not the only 
child who who had a parent who who dispensed those those values. A lot of people did, but but I do know that uh, that I and my brother too. We just attribute my dad especially with all of those things. He, he used to emphasize you have to have a proper set of values, and that proper set of values uh, where it comes from. You know, it could be molded when you're in high school. It could be molded when you're in college, but. But the fact is, you have to determine how you're going to conduct your life, and that it's going to be a respectable approach to life. And and, and I know that I know that, uh, that that we're we've always been grateful to him for that. And and it's it's just it's it's a little bit depressing at times that that he wasn't around to see the success that we have been fortunate to enjoy. Um, but but we're always grateful for it. Always. What are those? What are like maybe two or three of those values that he was he was intentional about teaching you? Well, just just a matter of doing the right thing at the right time, and 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 being uh, being honest and straightforward in your approach to anything, you know, meet problems head on. Um, and I mean, we always we we were known the the Gumble Kids were known as uh, as as the, the most polite kids uh, on the block or in the area or whenever we would go down to. You know, my dad was a, a circuit court judge in Chicago. And we would go down to uh, to his chambers and say hello to all the other judges, and they would always talk about, you know, what terrific kids we were. And I guess in retrospect, we were in a way. Now we had our moments. Uh, we 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 were altar boys, and we used to serve the family mass in our parish church on Sunday morning. And my mother was so proud. Oh, look at them up there on the altar, you know. And and my dad was an usher, and he passed the, the basket to, for collections and stuff. And then they're outside afterwards talking to other people, and they're saying, oh, Greg and Brian look so wonderful up there. Meanwhile, Greg and Brian are in the back of the sacristy uh, drinking the leftover wine from Mass, you know. <laughs> and we go out and, hi, how are you? Oh, good job. Thank you so much. Oh, you know. Um, but, but, but by and large, uh, by and large, it was go to church every Sunday and, uh, you know, any summer job that we had, give part of the part, give part of the money you make to your mother, um, little things, you know, he always told me, he said, you're the oldest, you know, the most important thing you do in life is look after your brother and your two sisters. And, you know, those are, those are little things. And sometimes people take those things for granted. And, uh, and and a lot of people they miss the mark and they really don't get that sometimes until it's too late. Well, one of the things you were just mentioning that that uh, you know you miss your dad being able to see you do so many amazing things. So so for me, one of my favorite things part part of this job for me is is an actual job, but part of it is is fun and excitement. And for me, I'm a huge huge fan of March Madness. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, announcing where the seeds are and what regions or just the, you know, during the game, I always hope because uh, I never have enough vacation time, it seems like. So I always hope that I'm actually sick, uh, you know, that those middle two, <laughs> that that Thursday and Friday in March. But uh, what is it like every year being the voice of March Madness and being a part of something like that? Well, it's always been a grind. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, before before we entered into this partnership with Turner Sports, it was me in the studio. <laughs> I had I had a couple of partners, but basically it was me. And I don't think people realize that the typical, you know, the typical week I'd fly up to New York on Wednesday, and then on Thursday, uh, you arrive in the studio at about seven thirty in the morning to get ready for the first games that start to to, to uh, uh, be played at about noon, 
And then there's halftime for that game. And then meanwhile, there are other games that are starting elsewhere around the country, and you do intros for that. And you probably, that first day, there are 16 games, and you get out of there at about 1 or 1.30 in the morning. Go back to the hotel, wash the makeup off, uh, get a couple hours sleep, and come back, and you do the same thing on Friday because it's another 16 games. And then on Saturday, you come in, and it's down to eight games on Saturday and Sunday. And, and those are those are pretty grueling days, but but as you say, it's an exciting time, and you don't feel it as much simply because number one, it's so much fun and so enjoyable to do, and number two, I know that there are so many uh, broadcasters in, in my business who would give their right arm to be able to do that, and I've never ever ever uh, doubted how how fortunate. I've been to be able to do events like that. Now, since the Turner people have arrived, uh, Ernie Johnson and I split the duties, which is kind of nice. You know, he'll he'll do half a day and I'll do half a day. But it's uh, it's 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 a it's a, fortunately it's only a three week run, and uh, it's an exciting week. And and the, the strange thing about it is it gets easier the closer you get to the finish because there are fewer games. So there there are fewer games. There's still about as much airtime and maybe a little bit more fill than you would like as opposed to during the, the the first part of the tournament where you simply say hi and here's the score and hey let's check in on this game over here because there's so much else going on uh, but still i mean i agree with you it is such a unique unique event on the sports calendar um and and i'm just happy to be a part of it now one of the things we were putting out for some questions but one that everyone kept coming back to are what are some of the highlights or the high points the most memorable events that you've had during march madness you know you know, I'm not trying to duck the question, Brian, but I have never been one of those guys who, like, like I've been in groups of with other broadcasters who have worked the event at CBS, and journalists will say, hey, what's your favorite? And I'll go, well, you know, back in such and such, Syracuse made a heck of a run. And I'll sit there and go, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> I just don't. There's, there's way to, and like, well, do you remember when Ohio State? No, I don't, because it doesn't, it doesn't register on my hard drive. I, you know, once it's done for me, it's done, and I don't look back on it. Sure, you remember certain jump shots, you remember game tying or game winning baskets, but there are other people who are just so into it. Well, you know, Northern Iowa made that incredible run, and they knocked off Indiana, and they knocked off Houston. Well, I don't remember that. Well, now that you mention it, it does sound familiar, and I admire these guys you know, who, who remember all of those things, and it's 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 so uh, impaled on their brain. And I go, wow, I, I admire you for being able to remember that, but I don't. <laughs> it just doesn't hit me. So so you know, I'd be hard pressed. There are guys. There are guys who can go. Well, the Final Four last year were this team and this team and this team and this team. I go, really. Yeah, now, now maybe it's because maybe it's because I'm kind of tied up with other stuff uh, the rest of the time part of the year, like just ahead of March Madness is the NFL season. So, but I but I've never ever been. Gosh, we had a we had a seminar a couple of weeks ago as we do prior to the beginning of the season, and um, <laughs> these, these reporters sat me down and they put a microphone on me and I go, you know, ask anything you want. And uh, the guy says, name your five favorite moments from last NFL season. And I said, I can't name one. <laughs> I can't name one. I mean, I enjoyed the season. I watched the playoffs. But it's over and it's good. And so now, you know, move on to another thing. I don't do too much dwelling in the past. And I, and I so so I apologize. That I, I just don't think that the that the whole 
remembering certain moments, and I know rabid fans are totally into it, but I just kind of had a little bit more to deal with, and 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 they 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 kind of at times washed together. You know what I mean? Well, I I know you have been a part of you know so many iconic events. You know whether it's the NCAA tournament and, and the other one. I'm curious about the Olympics. I know you've been with you know with Atlanta and Lilyhammer and and others. And and what how is the Olympic experience different than maybe March Madness or something else? The Olympic experience, and I think most anyone who has ever done an Olympics they will tell you that it is tough. It is extremely difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, you're dealing with sports that you don't normally deal with. I mean, we're in Lillehammer, and I'm supposed to know everything there is about the four-man luge. <laughs> I went, really? They go, well, the, the, the team from Finland, I can't even pronounce their names. You know, or, <laughs> or, uh, you know, or, or the cross-country skiing. And 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 the, and the guys who ski and stop and shoot, you know, I, I was on Conan O'Brien immediately after the Little Hammer Olympics, and and I said, you know, to me, it's like the, if you ski and take a shot at somebody, now that's something that's exciting. You know? But but the fact is, the fact the fact is that there are those part of our job is to educate the public that is tuning in because they don't know that much about it either. When it comes to the Olympics, you're talking about events that that even the broadcasters aren't that familiar with. When I did Lillehammer as the primetime host, I spent an hour and a half with researchers twice a week for a year prior to the Olympic Games, just being educated on the sport, past history, who's won before, who were the main contenders this time around. And you did that for every single sport and uh, in every single country. And pronunciation is tremendously important because if you mispronounce a game, guarantee there's at least one person out there who knows you screwed it up. And 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 you and those are those are things that that you have to get right. So there's a great and I, and I studied every single week for a year and a half before the Olympics in Little Hammer, Norway. And then you get over there and then you just do the best you can in trying to set the scene. And it's it's really not unlike hosting a studio show because you're a you're you're a bit of a traffic cop. You know, this is what's happening here, and now we're gonna take you over here. Here's the situation here, and here's what just happened here, and we'll go back to this. Um it's it's fun because it's so different. You know, mine was uh, Albertville, France in ninety two, uh Lillehammer, Norway in ninety four, and the Atlanta Olympics in ninety six. And and it's unusual and 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 it was and it was fun, but uh, it, for people who who do that on a regular basis, uh, God bless them because it is it's a difficult chore. It's interesting because they are, with the exception of Atlanta, obviously, in such unique locations. And part of the experience is being able to experience Lillehammer, Norway, for instance. You know, like, because my first question was, well, how do you get there? I said, well, you you fly to Oslo. And then you're driven to Lillehammer. I go, well, driven how long? Well, about two and a half, three hours. And that's if the weather is good. And, you know, meanwhile, this is the Winter Olympics, and you're right in the middle. Oh, and by the way, you're a hop, skip, and a jump in the Arctic Circle. I remember we were in the studio about midnight one night. Everybody came running in. Like, hey, hey, you got to come see the Northern Lights. you got to go. So everybody runs out the back door out into 10 below weather. And they point to a hill, and there's lights on the other side of the hill. And I said, that's it? Yeah, the Northern Lights. I'm like, you know, it looks like a traffic jam on the other side of that hill, and I'm freezing. I'm going back inside. 
You know, you're talking about this tremendous amount of preparation that goes into this. I've got a question from our producer, Eric, here, who's an NFL guy, as I mentioned. He he wants to know, you know, you've got the – with CBS having the Super Bowl uh, this year or coming up in 2019, what, what's the preparation like for that for you? There's a whole season-long preparation, Eric. Um, the fact of the matter is every single week that you do games and that you follow the activity in the National Football League helps you prepare for the postseason and whatever you might be doing relative to it. Um, you cannot, you cannot go into, let's say, any discussion about the playoffs with the last four teams involved if you haven't been following them and following how they got there all season long. You know, if suddenly the if if, if you find the the Rams there, you can't be shocked that oh they started the season at five and zero. Oh. Well, yeah, they did, and so did the Kansas City Chiefs, and and all of that is knowledge that is built up. In fact, that's kind of that's kind of the opposite of what happens with the Olympics because the Olympic sports you're not following day to day, week to week, month to month. In the National Football League, you are, and so you're kind of prepared for that conversation to know that uh, this guy was injured for the first part of the season, or this guy was suspended for the first first four games of the season. Martavis Bryant was suspended, and then he joined the Oakland Raiders, and he's been tearing it up, and and things like that. So. So regarding the Super Bowl, I think that with any football game, really, the preparation that we do during the week leading up to the game is more statistical. Now, I make out, I make up boards and I put down names and numbers and height and weight and what school they went to and what year this is. And, and then, you know, like, for instance, this weekend, uh, I'm headed up to New York and I do the Jets-Colts game. And we talk about Robbie Anderson and how many touchdown catches he has and how... Uh, uh, Isaiah Crowell uh, has uh, you know ran for over 200 yards last week and and things like that. And there there's a lot of stuff that's common knowledge and you just add details to what you already know. Um, that's in football. That's in basketball. That's in baseball. Um, but 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 in the Olympics, to go back to that for a second, you don't have any of that, and so it's a whole new learning experience. It's like you're starting from scratch. What uh, advice, I know you were talking about having your brother as a mentor. If you were to go back uh, to, to your time there when you were first getting started, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, probably. And it's not something that I, that I, I think that you have to, that you, you force. I, I think it either comes naturally or it doesn't. And that's to have uh, a bit more self-confidence. Um, people have asked me, you know, the main difference between my brother and me um, Bryant brims with self-confidence. He always has. I truly had some questions as to whether or not I could do the job when I first started. I was known as Waterfall back in the videotape room because I sweat profusely on the air. And, um, and, 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 and people kept telling me, smile. Remember we talked earlier about, you know, people don't like watching people who aren't smiling. And I thought, well, you know, that's a little bit uh, disingenuous because there's nothing to smile about. They said, well, you got to smile anyway because people will like you more. And sure enough, it happened. Uh, and, you know, as I said, it took a while for me to get started. But the fact that the fact that, that Brian had all this confidence, he was an instant success. And it took me a little bit longer, as he said, to, to, to get comfortable and to learn what I was doing. And once I did, uh, I thought I was okay. But I would, I would just try to be a little bit more relaxed, have a little bit more self-confidence, and, and, and go about my job knowing that I can do it, as opposed to hoping that I can do it. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. 
To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast?